bless John Mark as he preaches and be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Today's scripture reading is Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of God. Good morning, family of God. I am feeling thankful this morning for many reasons. Most of all, I'm feeling thankful for Jesus. Isn't it great to be the people of Jesus? Thankful for the gospel of grace and the hope that we have of eternal life with Christ. I'm also feeling thankful that it is less cold in this sanctuary today than it was last Sunday. And uh, the word on the street is that the part that is needed to fix the heater in here is on back order because of COVID. So if you want something to pray for this week, you can pray that God will expedite that part getting here. But in the meantime, there are various strategies you can use to keep yourself warm during a sermon. For example, at appropriate times, you could clap your hands, you could wave your hands in the air. A few things will keep heart and body warmer than saying amen. So let's practice this. I'm going to say Jesus is king and you say amen. Jesus is king. Now if we keep that energy going, we're going to get through this together, all right? We have a habit at Christ Community Church of beginning each calendar year by taking some time to return to the Psalms. Aren't the Psalms good? That's what I like to hear. That's what I'm talking about. The Psalms are good. The Psalms teach us to pray. The the Psalms show us the heart of God and the character of God. The Psalms have a way of re-centering us on what's really important. And today we're looking at a Psalm which is making a very important point that I pray God will help us to take deep into our hearts at the beginning of this calendar year 2022. And the point is this, God isn't going to let the evil powers in the world win. The power of evil is real. The Bible makes that clear and this psalm affirms that, but the power of Jesus is stronger. Jesus is the lamb who was slain for the sins of the world and Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah who will set all nations free from the deceptive and oppressive and idolatrous powers of darkness. Aren't you glad that King Jesus is going to win? If you are here and you've been trying 
to live a lifestyle in rebellion against Jesus, the psalm is pleading with you, don't do it. Don't do it. Repent. Rebelling against Jesus does not end well. But if you are trying to humbly walk with Jesus, the message of this psalm is rejoice. Rejoice. Because no matter what is happening in the world, Jesus will overcome evil. Jesus will rescue his people. And Jesus will make all creation new. If we read this as disciples of Jesus, this psalm is really a victory song. It's a declaration of the gospel because the victory of Jesus is the victory of God and of all God's people. If you trust in Jesus, then the victory of Jesus is your victory by grace. So I'm praying that as we go into the year 2022, that Psalm 2 will teach us to be people of joy and people of hope and people of courage because Jesus has defeated Satan, sin, and death. And because if we are submitted to the will of King Jesus and in his name we're out proclaiming the gospel and loving our neighbors and resisting the powers of evil, we can know there is an omnipotent force working through us that will not be defeated. That's the hope of this psalm. So with that in mind, I want to give our attention now to the words of the psalm. It is divided into four stanzas. Each of those stanzas is three verses, and I want to look at the stanzas one at a time. So if you could give your attention with me to the first three verses. The text says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart. And cast away their cords from us. In these opening verses, we are confronted with the reality of evil powers at work in the world. The nations are raging against God. Nations, Gentile nations, all the nations of the earth. This text reminds us that though God created every culture so that every culture reflects God's goodness... It's also true that every culture and every human heart is tainted by sin. So there's good and evil in every culture, in every nation. There's good and evil in American culture. There's good and evil in every subculture within America. All of us are in need of God's redemption. And the psalm is bearing witness to this multinational, multicultural, anti-God force at work in the world. The nations rage. It says the people's plot in vain... And that word plot is the same word that is translated meditate in Psalm 1. Some of y'all know the first psalm. The Psalter begins with the words, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Everybody say, meditate. Now that same Hebrew word for meditate shows up here when when the psalmist asks, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot or meditate in vain? Which alerts us to the fact that all of us are meditating on something. To meditate just means to think deeply about something. It actually means murmuring or mumbling. It's reminding us that there's talk going on in our heads. We're all talking to ourselves. Some of us do it out loud. Some of us just do it inside, right? And we're all meditating on something. We've got words going in our heads. 
When we compare Psalm 1 to Psalm 2, it causes us to ask, what am I meditating on? Are my thoughts the words of God? Am I meditating on the truth and the goodness and the holiness and the grace of God? Or is there something else taking root in my thoughts? And here, the psalm asks us to notice that there's people whose thoughts are filled with folly. They're filled with rebellion. They're raging against God. But notice that verse 1 is a question. Why are they meditating in vain? Because no plot against God can prosper. Verse 2 draws our attention specifically to the kings of the earth, the rulers of the earth. The Bible speaks often about the fact that though God is powerful and though God gives power to human beings so that we can use our power to bless one another, the reality of sin is such that human beings often use our power not to bless but to exploit and hurt one another. And it speaks often about the fact that People with a lot of power, kings and rulers, often turn against God because they want to be in charge. We can think of the story of Pharaoh in Egypt who enslaved the Israelites. We can think of the story of Herod that we talked about last Sunday who would slaughter innocent babies to try and protect his own power. We can think of Pontius Pilate who knew that Jesus was innocent and yet condemned him to death in order to protect his own power. And we can look around the world today At the small scale, we see corruption in small businesses, domestic abuse in homes. And at the large scale, we see tyrants and power over many nations. And we see corruption at work in every political system on the planet. The kings and the nations are opposing the Lord and his anointed. Now that should cause cause us to pause for a second and ask a question. Who is the Lord's anointed? Mentioned in verse 2. See the verse? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. You might circle that word. Everybody say, his anointed. This is the Hebrew word from which we get our English word Messiah or Christ. All the kings of Israel were anointed with oil. Saul was anointed with oil when he became king. David was anointed three times actually. And all the descendants of David who sat on the throne of David in Jerusalem were anointed with oil. This verse, however, and this psalm as a whole evokes some deeper and broader hopes. Because it evokes the hope that God gave us in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16. God said to David, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And that promise God gave to David to make a covenant with David that David's dynasty would continue forever is a promise that would continually be developed and expanded in the Psalms and in the prophets. And it's a a promise that begins to take the shape of this messianic expectation that there will come one king from the line of David, who will rule over all nations with perfect wisdom and justice and power, and his kingdom will be the kingdom of God, and it will go forever and ever. This psalm is already pointing in that direction. So the psalm can be applied in some sense to David or Solomon or Hezekiah or Josiah or any of the righteous kings in the line of David, and we can understand it as saying, hey, look, the kings in Jerusalem were servants of the Lord, or at least they were supposed to be servants of the Lord, and to rebel against them... It's going to invite divine discipline. But ultimately, the psalm is pressing 
uh, beyond itself and pointing to a future king who is greater than any of those kings. And y'all know his name. What is his name? Jesus. The psalm creates expectations that there will come a ruler from the line of David who is wiser than David or Solomon. He's more righteous and humble and just and powerful than any of the kings in Israel. And in fact, on at least four occasions, the New Testament quotes this psalm and says this psalm is about Jesus. The psalm's all about Jesus. So Jesus, in the ultimate sense, is the king. He's the Messiah, the Christ, who came to rescue the world from the power of evil, which means this psalm is about the enslaving powers of the world trying to overthrow the liberating power of Jesus. They try and they fail because nobody is stronger than Jesus. The weakness of his cross is stronger than all the military and economic and political powers of the world. But notice the irony of verse 3. What, what are these tyrants saying? Let us burst their bonds apart. That's the tyrants of the earth talking about the authority of God and of his Christ. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The truth is that the God revealed in Jesus Christ is the liberating Lord of all creation. He's the one who makes us free. Everybody say, Jesus makes us free. It's the powers of evil and darkness that enslave us. But here the evil powers of the world are talking about God's authority like it's enslaving. Let's break the chains that God has put on us. Isn't that interesting? Sin promises to make us free, but it makes us slaves. Not only that, this is saying more specifically, political leaders, political parties, political ideologies promise to make us free. And they represent any power that competes with their power as enslaving. In America, we have a venerable tradition of speaking about our presidents and our military leaders in messianic terms. But putting our hopes in political leaders and political parties and political ideologies will make us slaves. That's why Psalm 146 is going to say, Put not your trust in princes and a son of man of whom there's no salvation. So the first stanza here is alerting us to the fact that there are powerful, deceptive, dark forces at work in the world that want to tell us God's power will enslave us, but our power will set you free. And that's a lie. Only Jesus can make us free. And the next stanza, though, tells us there may be dark powers in the world, but you have nothing to worry about. Everybody turn to your neighbor and say, don't be afraid. Why don't you have to be afraid? Look at verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Ha, ha, ha. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. What the verse, the, the text is saying here, my fingers are too cold to turn the page in my notes. Give me a second here. What the text is saying here is that all the evil plots in the world do not make God nervous. Christians don't need to be conspiracy theorists, not because there aren't conspiracies out there, but because all the plots of the world don't make God nervous. 
all the evil powers and forces at work trying to stop God's salvation plan don't fail. God laughs at them. And if they don't make God nervous, they shouldn't make us nervous because we're God's people. There are two obvious implications of this for us. If we are walking with Jesus, we have absolutely nothing to fear and we have everything to celebrate. That's implication number one. On the flip side, if you're rebelling against Jesus and thinking you are going to get away with it, you had better think again. Repent. Come to Jesus today. Don't wait. But this psalm is speaking to us as the people of God. And what it's saying is this. If you know Jesus, you can sing with Fred Hammond. No weapon. I'm not going to sing. If I was a little bit cooler pastor, a lot cooler pastor, I would sing right now. But y'all can go listen to it later on Spotify. No weapon formed against me shall prosper. It won't work. Why won't it work? Because the Lord is the shield and the refuge for his people. He laughs in derision at the plots of the nations. Verse 6 reminds us again that the creator of the universe intends to establish his kingdom through his anointed king. And as we saw a moment ago, this has a very partial and imperfect fulfillment in the kings from the line of David, but its ultimate fulfillment is in Jesus. Jesus is the king. He is the God-man. And on Zion, God's holy hill, he established God's kingdom. Tertullian said that on his cross, Jesus was enthroned. That's a countercultural way to become king. The death and resurrection of Jesus are the center of human history. And when Jesus returns, he's going to make all things new. God has established the power and the authority of Jesus, so nothing could stop him. Which means, if you are here today and you are hungering and thirsting for God's righteousness and justice in the world, this should be like water to your thirsty soul. It means greed will not win. It means division in the body of Christ will not win. It means corruption, political corruption, religious corruption will not win. It means selfishness and bitterness and unforgiveness will not win. Racism and white supremacy will not win. Terrorism will not win. It means poverty won't win. There's only one who's going to win. Everybody say, Jesus will win. The theme that the Lord's anointed king will win is further developed in the next stanza. Look with me at verses 7 through 9. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. You may or may not have noticed that the theme, Son of God, is used throughout the Bible in a variety of ways. Let's talk about it. Everybody say, Son of God. First of all, God calls the people of Israel His Son. He's like a father for Israel. He protects them. He cares for them. They're His Son. Second of all, the kings of Israel and David's lines and David's line are called sons of God because they enjoy a special relationship with God as their father and because they're supposed to reflect the character of God the Father and the way that they rule with compassion and justice. Third of all, Jesus is the incarnation of the eternal son of God the Father, begotten of his father before all ages. 
But also, fourth, you may or may not have noticed that the scripture also speak of Jesus being declared the Son of God in power in a new way at various points throughout his ministry. Like when he's baptized. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. At the Mount of Transfiguration and in moments of his vindication, especially the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me just point to one example of the New Testament interpreting Psalm 2, verse 7, as talking about God's vindication of Jesus through his resurrection. In Acts chapter 13, Paul is preaching the gospel. And he has said, Jesus Christ is uh, the one who we've been waiting for. He died on the cross for our sins. And then in Acts 13, 32 through 33, we read this. And we bring you the good news. Everybody say, good news. We bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, he's talking about Psalm 2, this he will fulfill to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it was written in the second Psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Now what is Paul saying here? He's saying Jesus has eternally existed as the son of God, but Psalm 2, 7 was fulfilled when Jesus rose from the dead. Because by raising his son to the dead, the father vindicated him and said, this is the king from the line of David who is greater than all kings. He's more righteous than David. He's more wise than Solomon. He's more humble and loving and powerful than any other king. And this king alone has the power and the authority to set all nations free from the powers of darkness. Jesus is the king. He's the unique son of God. Actually, in all of the senses that we just mentioned, Jesus alone is the perfect fulfillment of the vocation of Israel and of God's calling on the heirs of David as well as the eternal son of the father. Now, verse 8 gives a promise. Ask of me and I'll give the nations to you. When I was growing up in youth group, we sung this song. Anybody else sing the song? Ask and I'll give the nations to you. That's the cry of our hearts. This promise is given to Jesus. So there's one sense in which only Jesus gets to claim this promise. But there's another sense in which everybody in Christ gets to claim it. When Jesus claims it, it means it was promised long ago that after my suffering and death, I would rise from the grave and then all nations would be gathered to me and would bow the knee and their tongues would confess that I am Lord and that's going to happen. When we pray it, it does not mean God make us in charge of all the nations, okay? When we pray it, what it means is this. As the people of Christ, we're coming to you in the name of Jesus and we're saying, Father, draw the nations to King Jesus. Overcome the powers of darkness. Liberate the nation. Shine the light of the truth of Jesus Christ into all the dark corners of the earth. Which means it was a good song we were singing in youth group. As long as we understood it in that way. Verse 9 then reminds us that the Lamb of God is also the Lion of the tribe of Judah. In Jesus we find God's mercy, forgiveness, and grace. In Jesus, we also find God's redeeming power at work, overthrowing the powers of darkness. And he will keep extending his reign on earth until all the powers of darkness have been decisively broken. 
What does verse 9 mean for us? Well, look at Revelation chapter 17, verse 14. It's been talking in Revelation chapter 17 about the dark powers, corrupt political and religious powers of the world that are enslaving the nations and opposing God and God's church. And it says, they will make war on the Lamb. Doesn't that sound like Psalm 2? They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. Meaning the victory of Jesus is the victory of God and of all God's people. The final stanza of the psalm calls us to respond. Calls the nations to respond and it calls us to respond. Let's read it. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. I want you to circle those words, be wise. Think about the nature of true wisdom here. Therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. You might might want to underline those three words too. I love it. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This stanza teaches us that wisdom means surrendering our lives freely, joyfully, and completely to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's the path to wisdom. Therefore, O kings, be wise. Verse 11 tells us something remarkable about this life of wisdom. And what it tells us is that the life of joy is also the life of trembling. Rejoice with trembling. You see that phrase? The phrase is so awkward that some modern translations change it. And then you can go read the notes and they say, well, this word usually means rejoice, but that would be awkward here. So we make it say repent with trembling, basically. I think this is a good translation. Rejoice with trembling. Either we will be people who live eventually in terrified trembling because we have chosen evil and evil is going to be defended or we can become the people of God who live with joyful trembling. We're trembling because God is awesome, because God is holy, because God is all powerful. We're trembling though with joy because we know that this holy, awesome, all powerful God is the God of mercy and grace who came to the cross for us. And it's summoning us to pledge our loyalty to Jesus, to say, Jesus, you are the king, you are the savior. Only you can defeat the darkness inside of us and the darkness in the world. And we're bowing our knees before you and we're submitting to you and we're trembling with joy because we know that in you we have victory. That's what it means to be a Christian. Kiss the son in verse 12 means repent and submit to Jesus. Jesus is speaking here or the psalmist is speaking here on behalf of Jesus to those rebellious kings from verses 1 and 2 and 3. You see, God doesn't want to def- defeat and humiliate the evil powers of the world. He wants them to repent. He wants them to turn away from darkness. God is gracious and merciful and he invites his enemies to be reconciled to himself through Jesus. But it says, kiss the son lest he be angry. And you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. That phrase raises some theological questions for us, doesn't it? See, the Bible teaches us to say of God that he loves steadfastly, 
that he is slow to anger, and that his wrath is quickly kindled. How are we going to say all three of those things? How do those hold together? Let me try to summarize how I understand this. God loves everybody. And he is patient with everybody, which is why over and over the Bible says he is slow to anger. God came all the way to the cross so that sinners could be forgiven and his enemies could be reconciled. Those who rage against the God could be embraced by God. That's the extent of God's love. And God is willing to forgive all of us. He's not willing that any should perish. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. He's willing to forgive all of us. But if we persist in rebelling against God and harming one another, there is a reality that God will put a stop to that. God isn't going to let humans oppress and terrorize and abuse other humans forever. He isn't going to let us suppress the truth that would make the world free forever. He's going to defeat the power of evil and he pleads with us to let go of evil so we don't go down with that ship. That's the quickly kindled part. Judgment is going to come and when Jesus comes to defeat the powers of evil, that's not going to be a long fight. It's going to be over quickly. God's victory is going to be decisive. To the rebellious... This should be a very sobering call to repentance. To anyone who wants to persist in sin, this is God saying, don't do it. Don't hold on to evil. Turn away from it. But to all who hunger and thirst for righteousness, this should be a cause of great comfort. Let me ask you, saints, as we try to go out into South Oklahoma City and preach the gospel and love people and mentor fatherless kids and work for education equity and all the stuff that we're doing all the time. Do you ever feel kind of puny? Do you ever feel weak? Sometimes I feel weak. We're doing so little. And then I think about our vocation to bring hope and light and joy to all nations. And the few people that we've sent out and more that we long to sin it just feels like the church is small and even if you think about the universal church I mean one third of the people on the planet today name the name of Jesus but if you look at the church we struggling out there we can't get along with each other we're biting and devouring each other on social media the church has suffered from schism after schism there's corruption all over the place sometimes I feel kind of weak and puny but what this is saying is God is not weak. Jesus is not weak. And though the body may be marred by many wounds, Jesus is still head of the body. Christ is still at work in his church. He's saving us by grace. He's redeeming us and forgiving us and healing us and sanctifying by grace. And he will keep doing that until the church is ready to be presented to his Father as a holy and spotless united, clean, and pure church. And when that day comes, it's not just going to be the church. All of creation is going to be new. So that angels and redeemed saints from every tribe, tongue, and nation will rejoice in God and say, we have seen with our eyes the victory of the Lord. That's what this psalm is talking about. And the last phrase makes it clear that 
This is an invitation to joy and to courage and hope for the people of God. I love the fact that this psalm ends with these little words, blessed are those who take refuge in him. The word blessed means filled with God's joy and life. Everybody say blessed. How do you experience God's blessing here? It does not say sort your life out, be a good person and obey all the rules and you'll experience God's blessing. What does it say? Let's just say it together. Repeat after me. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Say it again. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Just means if you come to God and Jesus Christ and saying, I'm in big trouble. The evil inside of me and the evil in the world will destroy me. You're my only hope. Save you. Save me. Rescue me. He will do it. It's saying you're forgiven and you're healed and you're accepted by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That's our only hope. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. If you take refuge in King Jesus, he will save you from the power of evil inside of you. And he will save you from the power of evil outside of you in the world. And if you take refuge in King Jesus, part of his blessing means that his power and his life flow through you so that you and I actually become the people of God right now seated with Christ in the heavenly places with delegated authority from King Jesus to confront the evil power of the world with the truth and the grace and the love of Jesus Christ. We don't have to run away from the darkness. We can run into the darkness with the power of Jesus knowing that he will win. So it's a call to hope, it's a call to courage, it's a call to rejoicing, and it's a call to mission here. We're celebrating Jesus, but as we've said over and over, the victory of Jesus is the victory of God and of all God's people. We're always winning. Sometimes it looks like we're losing. Sometimes faithfulness looks like the cross. Sometimes it looks like persevering when things are small and slow, and it's like those old stories your parents told you about walking to school, it's uphill both ways. Three steps forward, two steps back. You remember that? Except for sometimes in church life, it feels like four steps forward, seven steps back, and you get run over by a car is what happened, right? And sometimes it feels like that way. But here's the thing. The weakness of God is stronger than men. And the folly of God is wiser than men. And God's grace is made perfect in our weakness. And Jesus is saying, if you'll just walk with me humbly and faithfully, I will unleash more power in you and through you into the world than you can imagine. As I've been meditating on this psalm this week, there's another song that I couldn't get out of my head. Some of you know the old spiritual, Ride on King Jesus. You know this one? Well, you can go look it up on YouTube this week and get a gospel choir to sing it for you. Once again, a certain level of pastoral gifting would cause me to sing it for you right now, but that's not going to happen. Although I talked to Pastor Scobie last week and he said he wants to come preach for us in April. Maybe I'll ask him to sing this song, if you could just hold that thought. Right on King Jesus was a spiritual written by slaves in the American South who found faith in Jesus in the midst of cruel oppression. And there's stories from the slave days of those Christians who would sneak out at night um, to gather together and tell Bible stories and worship Christ together in the heat of July or the cold of January, no heater outside, to worship God. And there's stories of those slaves singing this song and of slave masters coming to them and shutting it down and saying, 
If you keep seeing, we'll find out if we can hinder you or not. And yet the slaves continued to sing the song. It was an act of hope, and it was an act of defiance. And the refrain of the song is, Ride on, King Jesus, no man can hinder me. Ride on, King Jesus, no man can hinder me. Ride on, King Jesus. The phrase, ride on, King Jesus, is alluding to the book of Revelation when Jesus comes riding on a white horse to come back in glory and fulfill all of the hopes of Psalm chapter 2 to overthrow the powers of darkness. And the song was a song filled with biblical wisdom because this biblical theology was forged in a furnace of suffering. So they came to understand deeply that the victory of Jesus is the victory of God and of all God's people. In fact, I introduced to you a few months ago Howard Thurman, the great African-American theologian and grandfather of the civil rights movement, who wrote a theological analysis of many of the spirituals, including this one. And one of the things that he notes is that in the song, Jesus is synonymous with God. The victory of Jesus is the victory of God, and it's the victory of all God's people. So when they're singing, ride on King Jesus, they're singing on one hand, as, as you read the words of the song, Pray, save us from our sin, save us from the evil inside of us, because we need to be forgiven. But they're also singing, save us from all of the consequences of sin and evil in the world, because when Jesus comes on a white horse, that's like God coming to rescue his people in the same way he rescued them from their slavery in Egypt. I found this song in two ways. One, as a historical artifact, as an academic person sitting in a library, reading about the faith of black Christians in slavery, and then reading about the civil rights movement, because this song continues to be sung. But the other way that I found this song was when black brothers and sisters in Christ over the years have called me to help. They're advocating for justice somewhere, and they're calling me to come help. And I don't know about you, but... When I read about this, the history of Christianity in America and of places like Oklahoma City where African-American Christians have been in the front lines, putting their bodies on the line, often suffering or being arrested to stand up against injustice and racism, over and over I'm saddened by the fact that black Christians were doing that usually alone with very little support from their white brothers and sisters. Isn't that a shame? Isn't it something that we need to repent of? So when they call me and say, John Mark, can you come help with this? I try to say yes. And then if you show up, the amazing thing about it is that those same songs that were sung by slaves whose biblical theology was forged in a furnace of suffering are still being sung by those Christians today. And so I'm just sitting there trying to help. I'm trying to do what Galatians 6.2 says, which is bear one another's burden. So if I've got a black brother or sister that's a leader in another part of the community that's calling me to come help, I'll come advocate with you. I'll come support you. But they're filled with faith. And they start singing these songs. And when they say, ride on King Jesus, no man can hinder me. They mean, God forgive my sins, but also God overcome the powers of evil that we're facing in the practical everyday realities of our life. And I've had the experience of gathering with my brothers and sisters and being shaped and discipled by them because I'm singing with faith and I'm thinking, I'm just here to have an act of witness. We're actually not about to get this powerful leader to change his mind. And I've watched the guy's mind change. I've seen God actually bring changes of legislation. And a political speech happened that nobody thought it was going to, at least I didn't think it was happening. Everybody else singing the song thought it was going to happen. Their faith was bigger than mine. And some of you may be sitting there thinking, I don't know how to relate to that. There are a few white brothers and sisters in the room. And you may be thinking, I don't know how to relate to that. I don't know how to receive that. But here's the thing. 
The Bible's true when it says, in Christ Jesus we're all one family, neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, which means if Jared can read John Wesley, I can read Howard Thurman. Amen, Jared? And if uh, Chauncey can sing, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, you can sing, Ride on King Jesus. You hear what I'm saying here? We can be discipled by this heritage of faith. And what the song is trying to teach all of us is this, if Jesus is king, and we know he's going to win the victory, that means God's going to win the victory, and that's going to be our victory in Christ. And if we want to sing that song, all we have to do is be ready to hold fast to Jesus and to walk with him on a path of discipleship where we take up that cross every day. Now, as we're going into 2022, one of my prayers is that in 2022, we will be a people who sing songs of victory from our hearts. I want to connect this to what we said last week. I feel like for the last two years, there's been a lot of darkness in the world. And we've been doing the work of figuring out how do we cope with the darkness, which is a necessary work. But it's time to move past how do we cope with the darkness and walk in our vocation to be the people of light. Here's the way to put it this week. I don't want, in the year 2022... To settle with surviving the fact that the nations are raging. In 2022, I want to be the people who know the victory and the authority of Jesus. So with humility and with service and with suffering with necessary, we walk in that authority as people who say, Jesus is going to win and we won't be turned around. We're going to proclaim that gospel boldly. We're going to do those works of love and justice boldly. We're going to pray bold prayers because our faith is in a king who cannot be defeated. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray that God will do that work in our heart this year. Our Father, I just pray for the power of your Holy Spirit to take the truths of Scripture that we've been meditating on and make them real in our hearts. Let them be real today. Let them be real this year. Let them be real in our hearts 20 years from now, 30 years from now. That we wouldn't stay in survival mode. But we would know the reality that we have risen with Christ. And that our victory is sure. And that we've been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. So that we're not just trying to cope with the darkness. We're trying to shine your light into it. And to proclaim your kingdom. And I pray now, even as we go to take the Lord's Supper, that your spirit would be doing a work in us, bringing us to a place of deeper submission to Jesus, but also of deeper confidence and boldness and hope and authority that our works are never in vain as we share the gospel and love and serve your omnipotent powers flowing through that, through us, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.